Welcome back to Working Man's Pod. Dave, it's been it's been a hot minute since we've had some fresh new content for the masses. That's true, but the hiatus is over. The writing writer strike is allegedly over today is it? as we record this. I think it just ended like two hours ago. Yeah. Wow. Great. They news. got like a, a tentative agreement in place. Okay. Um, so and with that, our our strike is over. <laughs> my, my strike. So we're back, baby. <laughs> we're back, baby. All right. So today's episode, if you are unfamiliar with this uh this type of episode, it's called WP in 30, also known as WP in 3D, because this video is going up on to YouTube. Um, so if you're joining us on YouTube, uh Thank you and hello. I'll give you a little wave. Um, you are seeing Dave joining you live from South Carolina. I'm joining you live from my bed in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and uh, we're here chatting with you today about Oxomoxua. We're going to spend 30 minutes or so uh, talking about the album, the music on it, and kind of its legacy. So, um, Dave, anything before we dive in? Nothing. Let's talk about album three. Album three. So uh, we have gone on Dead's first two albums, um, San Francisco's Grateful Dead and Anthem of the Sun already. Go back and check those episodes out from January and April. So this is our third in the album series. And uh, I'm really excited about this one. I have really enjoyed kind of diving deep on all three of the albums so far, but I'm going to start off with this take. I think this is my favorite album so far. Yeah, I... I waffle between this and Anthem of the Sun. I love the experimental psychedelic feel of the whole album in Anthem of the Sun, but Oxomoxoa's peaks are way higher. Yeah. Like there's three songs that I keep coming back to here that I'm like, these are, these are the best things they've put on wax so far, but as a whole start to finish, I, I found myself enjoying Anthem of the Sun a tiny bit more. Okay, that's fair. So this album came out originally in 1969. So as we usually do, let's talk about that year in music when reviewed from 2023. So probably the two most famous events both involve the dead. Um, you have Woodstock in August and you have Altamont in December. Um, so I think that in the cultural zeitgeist, maybe especially until two years ago when um, Get Back the documentary came out and the Beatles rooftop concert, I think regained a head of steam in the zeitgeist. I think that those were probably the two most famous events in music. And then the Beatles ending would be, you know, I guess probably that would be even bigger than both or maybe not than Woodstock, but that's a pretty damn big one. It's just that that one didn't have like a big dramatic ending in as much as it just kind of petered out um, after, after that album came out. So, you know, you can, debate it one way or the other but either way the dead were involved in two massive events in music history this year both happened after this album came out Um, the album was released on june 20th of 69 woodstock was in august and altamont was in december so um that was in their future later in the year before this happened bands that were formed in 1969 not formed but led zeppelin one was released in 1969 so led zeppelin came on to the scene in this year for sure uh, the Jackson Five were founded in 1969. Ooh, uh, yeah, Hall and Oates. That one surprised mm. me. I think yeah, that, that is surprising. Like, yeah, they're like in my mind a total 80s band, but yep. they were formed in 69. Uh, Hot Tuna 
was formed in 1969. Uh, Craftwork, Little Feet, and ZZ Top all formed oh. in 1969. So, um, you know, a year that is, I think, if you were to pull a hundred people in the Mall of America for an answer on Family Feud about what do you think of when you think of hippies, 1969 would be very close to the top of the list because of Woodstock. Um, yeah, and you can tell that like the kind of most famous quote unquote hippie bands were already going um, by 1969, but uh, they were kind of hitting their steam and it was a different genre that was coming to form at that point, you know, craft work, they're kind of their own thing and a big predecessor of kind of synth rock and um, you know, they call it kraut rock, but also bands like Depeche Mode and then after them, Nine Inch Nails, ZZ Top, kind of also their own thing, but they've got a little bit more of that almonds, like Southern fried rock going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. So interesting bands that were formed in that year. Uh, the top Billboard album of the year, interestingly, was Iron Butterfly, Iron Butterfly, excuse me, their album Inagata Davida. Interestingly, it was never the number one album in like a month um it just over the course i know over the course of the year it just kept doing good business over and over and over again and so at at the end of the year when they counted the albums that was number one you probably know the titular song off that album and no other songs from it okay (laughs) you don't know it maybe classic rock radio staple okay you've certainly heard it even if you've forgotten it okay Top songs of the year are, I don't want to say weird, but divergent. Uh, number hmm. one song of the year, The Fifth Dimension, Aquarius slash Let the Sunshine In, The Dawning of the Age of Aquarius. It's the song oh, that's yeah, at yeah. the end of uh, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. There's like a dance montage to this song, <laughs> <Okay>. um, weirdly. <laughs> uh, so that was the number one song in the land. Very um, kind of free spirited and hippie-ish i would say um next song is the archies sugar sugar which feels like it's from a different era altogether yeah i would have guessed early 60s for that song me too and then the next two in the top five that i noted were the stones honky tonk woman Mm -hmm. that that sounds like 69 to me and of course the beatles get back yeah Um, great song so uh, interesting year in music, uh, a lot going on. I think that Woodstock is and the Beatles ending are the two things that people mostly think about, but a great year for the dead. I mean, we've talked about a bunch of their shows. For, well, not a bunch, but a, a good handful of shows from them in 69. They were playing a ton of live music. And um, they also found time to record a lot of this album in 69. So let's talk about this album. It was released, as I said, on June 20th of 1969 by Warner Brothers Records. It is eight tracks and 36 minutes long. It's tight. Um, it was recorded between September of 68 and March of 69 at Pacific Recording in San Mateo and, coincidentally, Pacific High Recording in San Francisco. So uh, one word separates the names of the two places that they were recording this. This was an in-house production. When you look at the production credits, you have a lot of very familiar names. Betty Cantor, Dan Healy, Bob Matthews, Owsley Stanley and Ron Wickersham are credited on the the tech, you know, the ones who are doing all of the engineering. So uh, stark contrast from their first two albums and especially from Anthem of the Sun where they had, as we talked about in that episode, well-discussed difficulties with the, um, <laughs> the recording 
a producer. Um, so this time they tried it by themselves. Um, I think that Joe Smith and the Warner brothers people were okay with that. They were like, fine, just go off and do it yourselves. <laughs> we're not going to worry about it. Um, I think that the thing that stands out to me about this album the most is that all of the songs are Hunter Garcia songs. Um, yes. this, yeah. So St. Stephen, Phil Lesh received a co-writing credit, but the others are all Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter. This was their first album with Bob Hunter as like a member of the band as their in-house writer. Also the only Grateful Dead album with Tom Constanton as a full member of the band. Uh, he appears on Anthem of the Sun and he was gone from the band by the time um, Working Man's Dead, I really almost just said Working Man's Pod, uh, came out um, as their next full-on studio John. So um, this was the the TC era. We also discovered that it was one of the first rock albums recorded using 16-track technology, which um, Ampex released in early 1969. So the band had already recorded the entire album, and they scrapped all of it and went back and re-recorded it all as, uh, as on 16 tracks so that they could get more of that nuance, more of those layers, and get each you know different piece of the music recorded on its own track, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I've got a quote from Bill Kreutzman about, about that decision. Uh, quote, the decision was made to toss everything we had already done and record it all again from scratch. This time we could go deeper and experiment with things no other band had done yet. Being able to utilize twice as many tracks essentially doubled the possibilities of what we could do with each song. The end result was dense and cumbersome in places, and all that studio time cost us a fortune, but we were experimenting on the sonic frontier, exploiting cutting edge technology, end quote. Very cool. You can feel that in the album. Um, Cause there are some tracks on here where they're really kind of pushing the limits, I think. Yeah. Weirdly, the experimental songs go deep with this like technology, I think. And then I think a lot of the, the better known songs, it doesn't, sound overdone it doesn't sound like they went too deep in this like i'm yeah. thinking about china cat doesn't sound like no. overproduced or like that there's so much going on yeah i would agree with that all right well with that being said um we should also talk about the album art because it is fucking wild <laughs> um i think that we should <laughs> we should talk about that a little bit so why don't we start here dave what does the album art look like to you it looks like you're like down in, I don't want to say like, like in the Coliseum, but like you're in at the bottom of an amphitheater kind of looking up and you've got this skull and these trippy trees and plants like around you looking down on you, watching you. What does it look like to you? To me, it looks like a very phallic skeleton ejaculating into a, an ovary sun. <laughs> That's what it looks like. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so take that for what you will. Uh, it is very interesting album artwork though. Um, I definitely think that that is the case. It's pretty wild. Uh, Rolling Stone also in 1991 selected this album artwork as the eighth best album cover of all time. So um, they agreed that this is some pretty wild stuff. Yeah, that's um, that feels high. I'm gonna say it. I I don't know that I 
I don't know that I would rank this album cover above Anthem of the Sun. I don't let alone many, many other pieces of music. Yeah, I think American Beauty is their best album artwork for my money, you know, and take that for a grain of salt. The art is so subjective, whether it's listening to music or looking at artwork. But for me, that's the one that I think is the most interesting. Um, but I should say the title of the album, uh, it's a palindrome, um, palindrome, excuse me. And, uh, it was created by the cover artist, Rick Griffin and Bob Hunter. So, um, yeah, I, they didn't really, there's a great part in, um, the, uh, long strange trip documentary where Mickey Hart pronounces it and he's like, Oxo Moxa. I don't know why it's that hard. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a palindrome. <laughs> and um so no deep meaning here it's just a cool sounding palindrome which i think is reason enough you know uh so anyways let's get into the music that's really what we're here about Mm. all right so the album begins with a very familiar late 60s dead track saint stephen um This song was played 197 times live between 1968 and 1983. And this is a really great recording of this song. Yes, I agree. It's a rhythm section standout. It's Phil and Bob like showing off a little bit of what everything they can do. And uh, the one thing I don't like, Jerry's like mixed a little quietly. Like Jerry's guitar is not overpowering in your ears, but it's, it's a good version of saint stephen so you saying that i agree with you with what you just said but you saying that jerry is mixed low did you listen to the 69 mix or the 71 mix i listened to the drum roll please i think it was like the 2013 remaster okay i don't i don't know which one that is off the top of my head Okay, there's a 2019 remaster where they have both versions. They have the 69 mix remastered mm. and the 71 mix remastered. So what what are we talking about? 69 mix, 71 remix. So Garcia and Lesh basically second-guessed what they had done in 1969, and they went back into the studio in 1971 to remix the album. So they removed some parts of the original release. The choir on Mountains of the Moon was gone. Um some weird sounds on what's become of the baby were gone. Um, There's a fade out in doing that rag that's in there. Also, Mm -hmm. there's just like the vocals are different and it's the mix is very different. The, all of the um, musicians sound louder to me. So I listened to both, but I found that I enjoyed the 71 mix more, which is strange. It's not strange. It's just, it's interesting to me that I did because I think a lot of times when artists second guess themselves and change things, it's just not helpful. Yeah. It usually doesn't work out so well. And you and I, as people who write for a part of our living, I think we can both agree that in in a writing project, if you go back and look at something like a year later, you're always going to find things that you would have liked to have changed. But sometimes I question how valuable that actually is. And if it might just be better to go with what you were doing in the moment you know, leaving that original, who knows, you know, we'll never know, but, um, it's interesting. So I, I agree with you that in that, that Jerry's vocals are, do you mean his guitar or his vocals are mixed low? I meant his guitar, like his oh. guitar playing, um, sounded a little low, but now that you mention it, um, you can like hear the backup is equally loud as him. Yeah. Now that you mention it on the vocal side. 
Mm-hmm. Well, in any case, um, I I think you know we we're both aligned that this is a really good recording as far as like a song that they played well, really well live, and that they captured the essence of it in the studio. Mm-hmm. Even though it's only a four minute and thirty second version, they they get you there. You know, I I would I love Saint Stephen as I know you do, um, and I would definitely submit this to someone and say like check this song out. You might like it. Um, as far as like trying to get them into some just good old Grateful Dead songs. Yeah, I agree with you. A song that I wouldn't really submit to someone checking out the Grateful Dead comes next, Dupree's Diamond Blues. Neither of us are Dupree heads. We're not. We're on the record Um, as not Dupree heads, but I'm about to shock you, Dave. Oh, this is the song that was stuck in my head for the last week and a half as we were getting ready for this. And huh, I don't question how these things happen. I just accept them. Um, Could it be that the standout acoustic guitar work is what what captured it in your mind? It's great. The guitar playing is wonderful. It's so clangy. That was the high high point for me. Yeah. Um, Phil's bass is also nice. You can't hear it super clearly, but in the beginning of the song, it's great. Um, He's really taking it for a walk in the beginning. Um, But also just like the organ sounds are pretty good. Like they are kind of fun and like almost ice cream truckish to me um that's just like got that little bit of a bounce to it um or like a baseball organ like um you could picture it maybe at wrigley field um yes okay so i have been on the record i the like weird um i guess the metaphor in this song jelly roll i just don't like it this song makes me feel icky usually when i hear it (laughs) um but it is a well-told story the you know, you can really conjure the image of what's going on um, when you hear the lyrics. Obviously, you know, Rob, Robert Hunter was great at that. Um, and yeah, this song was just in my head this whole time that I was playing. It made me question how much I actually like or dislike this song. Um, but I also question how much the Deadlights or disliked it because they only played it 82 times, um, mostly in 69 when they were playing it live. Then they brought it back in 77 for a bit. 82 to 90, they played it sporadically and then two final versions to punctuate its history in 1994. So they didn't play it very much, but amazingly, this is the third most played song from this album. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So that's wild. Um, What do you have anything else on Dupree before we move on to Rosemary? Yeah. Well, just my critique of the song was that this song couldn't really decide if it was going to be a folk song, a country song or a blues song, which I think nine times out of 10 would be a good thing. Like if the grateful dead aren't boxing into any one genre, they're kind of forming an identity of a song. And yet nothing about this stood out as like an identity forming statement. It was just kind of there for me and like different enough to be different, but not good enough to be stuck in my head for the last week and a half. Unlike okay. you. Fair enough. Um, okay. Next song, Rosemary. I did not know what to make of this song. They only played it live once. So for oh, wow. the deep live deadheads who have not really gotten into their, um, their studio records, um, you wouldn't even know that this song existed. For a long time, it was believed that they had never played it live. But um, eventually, and I'm not sure exactly when, this performance emerged from the the annals of history. Uh, December 7th, 1968, they played it at Bellarmine, B- 
Bellarmine College in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, interesting. Um, they didn't use the voice filter that they have on the studio version. I don't, I'm not sure how they would have done that live anyways. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. That definitely sounds quite different. Um, and yeah, I don't know. What else, what else about this song, Dave? What did you think about it? The guitar work is nice and sweet. It was not my favorite acoustic experimental song on this side of the record. Not even on this side of the record. Okay. Yeah. The, the um, live version is like five minutes long and I saw some speculation because the version on the album is like less than two minutes. Yeah. There's pretty short. Yeah. There's speculation that it was just meant to be a fragment of a song. And then they were basically just like, well, this album without this is like 34 minutes long. So let's just add it in and, you know, take up some more space on the A side. I'm, I'm, I'm mm. saying that in like an almost dismissive way. I don't mean it like that. It's just like, Hey, this is an interesting thing that we've created. Why not include it on the album too? Um, so a lot of also speculation about what the meaning of the song is kind of where it came from. Um, there's, I don't know. It's interesting. There's talk about uh, the song, the secret, or sorry, the the novel, the secret garden that was then made into a film. That it might be a reference to that. Not sure. To me, what I kept thinking of was the movie um, Rosemary's Baby. Sorry, that came out in 1968, um, a year before this. And you have this song, Rosemary, and then on the B side, you have What's Become of the Baby. Um, Rose, oh, Rosemary's it together there. Yeah. Yeah. It might be a stretch. Rosemary's baby is one of the early, very famous, um, horror movies and Jerry Garcia, a known horror head. So I don't know. That's my theory. I'm sticking to it. Okay. All right. Let's keep it moving. Next up is doing that rag. Um, this song was only played 43 times live. I think we've talked about two of them, um, all in 1969, <laughs> Um, and I, I actually dig this song. So I was, I love this song, this versions. I love this studio version. It this was my, this was the one that was stuck in my head for the last week. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's tough to say this is the peak of the album because side B is still coming, but Mm -hmm. this, like this may, this puts itself in contention. I loved pig pens organ on this song. I was wondering if it was Pigpen's organ or if it was TC. I, I, it's hard. It's maybe impossible to tell. I have no idea. It yeah, seems like know. it would be Pigpen though, because I would imagine it Tom is Cons- because Tom is credited with keys, mm-hmm. and then like on Saint Stephen and I think one other song, there's like a distinct piano, whereas on like China Cat and this song, and I think Dupree's, there's like a distinct organ. Yes. Yes. I think, and that's consistent with what they were doing live at this time. Pigpen would play the organ parts and TC would play the the keys and the piano parts. So I think so too, but yeah, great song. I think that this is my high point of the album. Um, so yeah, man, it's, it, it, everything about it just works so well. It's true. And it's also uh, the longest song on this side. Uh, it's almost five minutes long. Um, they stretch it out and they make for just a really nice tune. Uh, any shout outs that you want to give to any of the individual performers aside from Pigpen on this song? Aside from Pigpen? Um, oh, the drumming. 
Yeah. yeah. The drumming, I think it's the high point of the whole album. The whole rhythm. I mean, because Phil also, it's his bass is sparse, but it sounds great um, on this song. So yeah, great stuff. Doing that rag. It's a shame that they only played it in 69 because it would have been yeah. interesting to like hear like 80s dead playing this song. Can you imagine? <laughs> well, like Brent wailing away, like yeah. the organ and then him, you know. Could have worked. Yeah. All right, we got to pick this up. We only got five minutes left, Dave. So let's uh, let's bring this ship home. Next song, Mountain of the Mountains of the Moon. This is the last song on the A side. Uh, another song that they didn't play live very much, only fifteen times live. Basically, all in '69, once in '68, and by the time this album came out, they were basically never going to play it again. Um, after the album I'm came shocked out, they, they, I'm shocked they played it even once. <laughs> yeah, well, they did. Um, I don't know why you're shocked. Why are you shocked that they played it once, Dave? Well, if they only played Rosemary once, I think the like psychedelic hypnotic like sound around it would be harder to project live than what was going on in Rosemary. Yes, absolutely. But this band was never one to shy away from challenge. I mean, come (laughs) on. They had some of the best audio techs in the world at this time. And I'm sure Owsley Stanley was all for trying to recreate this live. Uh, I bet it was hard (laughs) as hell to do though. And that's probably why they didn't play it very many times. Um, Yeah. Um, But I I, I like this though. Yeah. Me too. I I liked the song. Um, I I thought it was kind of hypnotizing and uh, it's a perfect word. There's a legit fill bomb like around the two and a half minute time mark that I, I refuse to believe didn't damage some sort of like acoustic bass amp they had in the <laughs> studio. <laughs> it like blows up the speakers when you listen to it with headphones on. Yeah, it's true. And you know what? Good for him for dropping a fill bomb, even with the acoustic bass. Yeah. <laughs> no, no bass and no bass amp is safe from bombardier lesh. Right. Love it. Okay. So that's the a side. Um, I think that's five tracks in total. Yes. Um, The B side is only three. So it starts with probably the most, no, definitely the most famous song from this album, uh, which is China Cat Sunflower. So um, this song was played 570 times live. I mean, the most by a factor of three compared to St. Stephen. Um, They played it all the way from January, 1968 to their penultimate show in 1995. So literally, I mean, until the end of the Grateful Dead, they were playing this song. You know, we've talked about so many different versions from so many different eras. So how did this studio version uh, capture you, Dave? Really well. I, While St. Stephen is kind of like a, like a shorter version of something that kind of sounded like what they played live, Yep. the studio China Cat is like truly a studio version of a song, yes. but in like in the best way like the the campy backing vocals and the, like the over the top you know production ads in the background i yep. loved it like in it wasn't too i just used the word it wasn't too campy it wasn't too cheesy it was like it was different enough from the live version that it was so clearly a produced studio version but it didn't go over the top in any yeah. way like it didn't ruin the experience for me yeah, I love it too. I love the China Cat. I think that that stuff is really cool. The opening riffs on this song from Jerry and then Bobby are just excellent. The way that they capture mm-hmm. that in the studio is great. The one from Bob, especially, it's just like, ooh, Bob, 
there you yeah. are. <laughs> um, right. And especially when you flip the the record and you have that B side and it just starts right there. It's just great. Um, also, I think that the lyrics to this song, as far as like the lyrics on this album go, you know, 1969 Woodstock, it's a time of like, it's a high point in like the psychedelic movement. And the lyrics to this song are as psychedelic as anything on this album gets, in my opinion. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, it's pretty wild. Uh, I love it. So I thought this was a great version. Um, it's cool to listen to this and then to hear, you know, like where China cat sunflower is now, you know, what Bob Mm -hmm. is doing with the wolf brothers and it's so different, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's cool to see its evolution. All right. Two more songs and we got to land this plane. What's become of the baby. This song they played on stage once. But I can't believe they played this one either. <laughs> Jesus <know>. Christ. <laughs> this one is the one that it's hard to believe they ever played. But, but Dave, it was from tape. So they played it over the, over the uh, AV uh, while the okay. band played space over the top of it. Okay. That, that makes more sense. Cause I, I critiqued this song in three words, spoken word space. Yeah. That's my analysis of this song. So that all- makes perfect sense yes so that's kind of all we need to say about it especially because we got to finish this thing up but i did not find the version where it's playing from tape and they're playing space over it but now i really want to and hear what that's all about (laughs) all right last song in the album cosmic charlie this song they played 45 times live almost all between 69 and 71 they brought it back for like a month in 60 or excuse me in 76 but that was it for cosmic charlie um what what are your thoughts on on this old jam my thoughts on this are i didn't know that they had lennon and paul and ringo and george harrison come in and record a song to end the album this is a beatles song dude like it sounds like a beatles song the melodic structure is very very similar to some beatles songs everything about this is a beatles song with the exception of Phil's bass near the end because again only he could fill bomb the way he did yeah other than that i was like wow it was this like a beatles song that was on the cutting room floor that the studio like had them try out i know it's not because garcia and hunter wrote it but yeah like man it is it is it's great analysis by you um i think even the opening line it's very evocative of like some Beatles turns of phrase cosmic Charlie. How do you do <laughs> like, yeah. And just like the way Garcia singing it, it sounds like he's trying to impersonate Lennon a little bit. Yeah. But that, that the Beatles have so many interesting turns of phrase in their lyrics. Um, I think, you know, the, how do you do is almost like cuckoo cachoo a little bit like it's very it's yeah. different. It's obviously not, not the same at all, but I'm just saying like that, that type of thing where the Beatles would just, they would word things in very interesting ways. Um, that is always captivating to me. Um, and this is a very interesting turn of phrase song with some cool lyrics and the music is really good. I mean, it's a great way to end the album as far as, uh, it's like Sonic, like contemporaries or other song. Are there specific songs of the Beatles that it, that it is evocative of to you? That's what I was trying to think about the last time I listened to it earlier today. Yeah. I'm not, I don't think so. I'm sure, I'm sure there are. I'm sure that's why I'm thinking about it like that. Cause there was yeah. probably some melody that kind of matched up, but I can't, 
I can't give you a, a single one right now. Okay, fair enough. Well, um, that is Oxamoxoa. For me, my favorite of their three albums so far. Um, I really enjoy it from St. Stephen to Cosmic Charlie. I think that China Cat is a standout um, on this album. Yeah. But I think Doing That Rag takes the takes the title. Dude, I'm, um, I'm with you. Like China Cat obviously you know, stood the test of time. I wish they had let doing that rag give, I wish they gave it a chance. Yeah. Let let it cook. Exactly. But yeah, listening to it, I found myself going back to doing that rag. Well, I hope that all of you out there doing that rag are uh, having a nice time enjoying yourselves, enjoying the fall weather that we're starting to turn into. Um, Dave and I will be back in a couple of weeks. We are going to talk about the uh, famous quote unquote Lake Acid show from Lake Placid, New York in October of 1983. We're going to be right around its 40th anniversary, uh, the same week mm-hmm. that it's coming out. So um, stay tuned for that in a couple of weeks. Um, and in the meantime, we bid you good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. That's it, that's it. You got it.